It's okay. I mean, what do you think this is for? I mean, do you, do you think your life is on the line? And he proceeded to tell me about God's grace. That everything that I had known about God's election in the Bible, that God chooses to set his love on particular people, that God is gracious to people, not because of anything that they have done, but because of his love set on them, because he looks at them and he loves them. And he sat there and he said this to me, and I could then, all of a sudden, take every critique possible from this person and everyone was about to give me. Why? Because it allowed me, because I was chosen, because I was known, allowed me to be free to put up with any critique possible. I was free then. I was frightened out of my mind, because I didn't know what was going to come up, but I was also free to accept it. I was free to be critiqued. I was free to be a jacked up person and messed up. And do you know what this text shows us through two jacked up lives and a messed up situation? Is that God chooses the messed up, jacked up people. And it allows us, and it does this. It's frightening and it's free. Our text reveals to us the antidote and the remedy of the poison of performance. And it reveals to a group of people that they don't have to be everything. That they don't have to earn God's love, but rather it is freely theirs. And that's what this text reveals to us in a wild, weird, roundabout way. And so, God chooses jacked up people, and that is frightening. And it's freeing. It's frightening and freeing. So first off, it's frightening. The text highlights for the audience that there is no natural way to secure the blessing of God. It is totally dependent on God. The problem first shows up with the kind of the first few verses that we read, starting in 19 and going through um, going through verse 28, that that there's a problem. And the problem was that Rebecca was barren. There was supposed to be a blessing and that the children of Isaac were to continue the blessing to the rest of the world. But here's the problem. She's not having any kids. Isaac's 60 years old. Alright? Um, probably by the time I'm 60, I don't know how many times I'll be riding a bike, but having kids was probably out of the realm of possibility for me. But Isaac is 60, having kids. But God is, hears his prayer he hears it. And he grants it. And so it wasn't up to their effort, but rather it was up to God who granted it. But then something's happened. They're battling in the womb. Apparently it was so evident. It was like WWE had broken out in the womb of Rebecca. I would love to have seen the fighting. It was so bad that she was in apparently pain that when she screams out, the Hebrew just basically says, If thus, why I? That's it. That's it. Why me? That's all she says. She's just exclamatory. And then God hears that. She inquires of him, like by saying, uh, why me? And God says, well, let me tell you. Okay, the two children that are born to you, they are going to father nations and they are going to fight. Not only are they going to fight, their children are going to continue to fight as well. And so the Lord responds, this is what's going to happen. 
And against normal human convention then, God says, the older Esau shall serve the younger Jacob. And so God sent his love on Jacob, even though neither had done anything to deserve or to dismiss the grace of God in their lives. God chooses Jacob, and therefore Esau, by result, is rejected. This is frightening, you know? Someone says, well, can Esau be saved? Yes, well, what does this mean? It means that he's going to be saved through the blessing that Jacob gets. And so, anyone who continues to be descended from Esau, are they forever cursed? No. They're blessed in Jacob. The blessing to many nations, including people who descend from Esau, the Edomites. And so it indicates that God doesn't work according to our human conventions. Human convention would have said that the firstborn, Esau, he deserves the blessing. Why? Because he's the firstborn. He magically escaped the womb before Jacob did. Pow! He's first, he wins. But that isn't the way God does it. God answers the prayer, not because of Rebecca or Isaac's effort, but because of his steadfast love to bring about the promises that God would bless the world through this child. And then, so it kind of puts against any conventions of moralism. It doesn't say that the younger had done anything. It was before they had ever done anything. God set his love on Jacob. So it is not a thing about moralism. And our world is so held by moralism, the conventions of moralism, uh, that, that we can't think of any other, other way. Right? We just, it's just in the air we breathe. Uh, let me... Think for an example here, okay? Um, for example, one of the first things, immediately after George Floyd was killed, the first thing people would say was, what was he doing? What was he doing that deserved that? See, that's the basic operating principle that we run on. We think he must have deserved something to get that. And so you'll hear rallies and people yell, he was a criminal. But did it deserve death? Someone's child, someone's, someone's brother, someone's friend. Does it deserve death? And our moralistic systems justify a lot of things in the world. But God doesn't play according to our moralistic systems. Does he? No. He's not going to play this primogeniture thing. Firstborn, you get everything. Congratulations. God's like, uh, that ain't the way it works. And so he chooses. He chooses them regardless of who they were. Notice that Jacob, Jacob is not loved. He's, he's by his father. It says that he's this little heel grabber. They're both jacked up. Both boys are depicted as undeserving. Edom is called hairy. Literally like an animal. He comes out and he looks like a chia pet or something, or like something you have found out of the vacuum. Yeah, real cute baby. It looked like a furry alien, apparently. It's so, here's your baby. Uh, what do you even call him? Esau, because he's like a rug. Uh, and then there he is. And so he was hairy. And then they notice that Jacob is grasping at the heel of Esau, which means he is deceptive. He's a heel grabber, is what that means. Troublesome. Okay? Both of these are depicted as non-savory, non-moral uh, non people. 
But yet, God chooses Jacob. Jacob is this quiet man, or he's refined. Esau is loved because he's a hunter, and he can bring home game. He's bringing home the bacon. And so his father loves him. Jacob, quiet, refined, probably smoking a pipe, enjoying time by the fire. He is a cultured or mature or more civilized man. Esau is guttural. He's into his appetites and is a man of the field. He follows the basic patterns of the world at the time. And he performs and is loved by his father. And in a moralistic system, the one who performs is the one who is applauded, and his father loves it. This appetite, though, will get the best of him, Esau, whenever he says, give me that red stuff. Jacob, he's conniving. Look at how he takes advantage of his brother and then leverages his vulnerability to get what he wants. Neither brother is depicted anywhere near admirable in either of these stories. Both are jacked up. One is barbaric and the other is scheming. Yet God chooses jacked up people. It goes against our moralistic mechanism for the world. If you're good, if you don't cause too much trouble, and as long as you don't kill anybody, you don't deserve anything bad, and you're allowed to have all the good things in the world. Commenting on this section, though, Paul says in Romans 9, But also, when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, uh, notice that Isaac is the only monogamous patriarch in the entire uh, book of Genesis. Though we were not yet born, though they were not yet born, had done nothing good or bad. They've done nothing good or bad. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. In Deuteronomy 7, the people learn that they are not chosen because of their number or their strength. No, they're chosen. They are loved. They are loved. And God has put a steadfast love on them. Why? Because He loves them. We need to understand that God is a person and not some sort of mechanism to be treated in a particular way. It is not. The Bible is not. Do these ten things, and you have hit the jackpot, and God will reward you. That's not what the Bible says. That's not the way it goes. It's not a set of rules. Yeah, there are some rules, but that's not what the Bible is about. Now, someone's probably wondering, oh, come on, Vince. What about human responsibility? If God is really in control like that, what about human responsibility? And to that, I would have to say is that, uh, they, they both exist. We see them both in the Bible. We see them both treated uh, in the Bible. And so we see we have this human and the divine. Do we understand everything about the divine? No. Can his will uh, assert itself on his creation? Yes. 
We are creatures with creaturely thinking. He's got divine thinking. Somehow, these two work together. And do you know what? As a creature, you need to say, I have a creaturely finite mind and say, they work together. I'm not going to go in and give some kind of random philosophical argument more than that. We see him in the Bible. We trusted that God is good and kind. And we ask him to work. And so it's frightening. Why? Because it's not determined by our effort. We are not in control. So we must confess that all our efforts to secure a future, to save our jobs, to save our reputation, to make ourselves appealing on some social media app, to make ourselves look good on a dating app, is not going to determine our future. No matter how much we work, no matter how much we try, no matter how much we put ourselves out there, it is no way that we can possibly secure the future that only God can give us. The frightening part is that it leaves us exposed. It shows us that we are jacked up. That even our little scheming, for me, my little scheming to do things such as, uh, I don't know, uh, preempt everybody's critique of me, is for naught. It's just showing how much more jacked up I actually am. How messed up I am. See, we don't deserve God's grace, and no one can strong on God and the blessing Him. It means, it means the frightening part is that we are we can become approachable to being critiqued. Do you know what this means? Do you know what's frightening? Your spouse, your roommate, your brother, your sister. When they approach you and say, you're messed up, what's frightening about that? You might be messed up. And it's scary. And how do you become a person that can actually confess that you're messed up and look back on the things that you have done and say, oh my gosh, how did I get here? What can free you to do that? It is because God loves you and he sent his love on you, not because you were, you've done anything. It's because he chose you. And so it's a great security to God's people at this time. You know, when we're exposed, insecure, and vulnerable, our default mode, though, in this world is not to rely on God, not to sit as open-chested people and let God do surgery on us. Oh, no, it is, ever, it is to perform. Has anyone ever failed you? Have you ever, uh, has your child ever done anything incompetent in front of you? And all of a sudden, your competency's on the line, and you're freaking out. Oh my gosh, how'd you get all that peanut butter out there? And somehow your, your reaction is completely unproportionate to peanut butter on their face in the middle of the grocery aisle. You know? How in the world does that happen? How did it become so unproportionate by that? It is because deep down, our default mode in our heart is believing that we are judged and accepted by God, or that we stay in relationship by God, or in God's good graces, because we think we can do it by our efforts. And this is like, uh, yeah, before you did anything, I decided to love you. To which God's people were like, I'd be like, yes. But now you know what often our, our, our antidote to that is? Like, uh, let me prove it to you. It's unbelievable. How do we do this? It's, it's crazy. You see, because God loves you, and if you get that to the heart, every critique is just a scalpel cut to heal you and not a club to kill you. You can be changed. 
This also works in the way that we treat people. It's not secured by our posturing. It is, imagine how people would be uh, around you if they were completely secure. If they were never trying to earn your approval. Imagine if it, what it would be like if they didn't have to feel like they had to be somebody for you. If they didn't have to earn your love. It'd be life-changing. It'd be gracious. And we're working that out every day in our lives, aren't we? Also think about how we're treated. You ever feel like you're walking on eggshells around someone else? I will tell you that there are many pastors who will preach grace like this all day long. But functionally, they're insecure in their standing. When they fail, or they're perceived as incompetent, what do they do? They're not open-chested to allow other people to actually get to them and give critiques. What do they do? They turn around and say, it's so-and-so's fault. They blame others. They minimize their faults. They're passive-aggressive. They ignore people. Why? Because functionally they may preach grace to others, but they disbelieve it for themselves. It's absolutely frightening, isn't it? To be exposed this way. We could use grace, we could use things like the Bible as just performative art in order to get the approval we want. But when the approval that you really need, God's love and grace upon you, is yours truly, Jesus Christ, then you are free. You could be free. Imagine what it would look like to continually not live on a performance treadmill. Imagine what it is like to not force others to do the same. To not blow up in anger when a child messes up because they're a child. When your co-worker fails. Not to freak out because in a certain way you become impervious to all critiques in the world. It's not going to kill you. So it's free. Esau, though, he's enslaved to his birthright in a particular way. And he's readily, uh, ready to exchange it. He's like, what good is this birthright? And it says that Esau despised his birthright. Because it enslaved him. It didn't allow him to be free the way he wanted to be free. Esau had the blessing, but it also came to the responsibility of the family of being the firstborn. So he resented it. He would say, this blessing kind of restrains me from me doing and being what I want to be. And so he is constrained by it, and it is because he serves a different master. He's serving the master of his stomach. Now he shows up, and he's all like, hey, yo, what's that red stuff? And Jacob's all like, oh, you want some, huh? I got a deal for you. Sell me your birthright, and I'll give you this red stew. And so Esau exchanges what is good for what is poor. Just a simple bowl of soup. And he served the God of his stomach and his appetites rather than the God of the Bible who loves us and puts his love on us. He resented his birthright. It held him down. But rather... This freedom would come to Jacob, not because he earned it. Notice even though he does this by a crook. He is, he's a crook. Jacob, Jacob is, this is an unsavory thing of him. You know, Jacob is loved 
by his mother without qualifications. It doesn't say anything in the, in the book why he is loved. It's full stop. But it says Esau was loved because he could hunt and brought game. Jacob, he's enslaved to what he wants to. He wants to be somebody. He wants to achieve it. He wants to get it. And so he does it by crook. See, he, do, he wants the blessing not for the sake of blessing others. He wants the blessing not because he thinks it's better, but because he thinks it'll make him better. It'll make him a somebody. And so he's enslaved to it too. But the beauty is, God's love is on us beyond these qualifications, or in this case, these disqualifications. It becomes a safety for us. God's love frees you because its safety is based on promise and not your performance. I love weddings. Wedding vows are great. Notice that it says in things like in sickness and in health, in riches and in poverty, I'm going to stick with you. And the security of that relationship is based on the promise. And that is love. It's not based on those things. Love makes yourself vulnerable in order to make the other person more secure. See, Jacob is enslaved and wants this. Jacob's a deceiver, but he will be transformed. He will be free because of God's love on him without qualification. You see, we are transformed, and people are transformed by gracious love, by being chosen. And it's not, the Bible is not, I get your act together and then God will love you. Rather, God loves you and you will want to change. Rather, when you see that this person sticks with you day in and day out, you know deep down you want to be a better person. In the middle of your mess. Because this continual gracious love that is set on you will change you and melt your heart. Yes, that is very much a reference to frozen. Okay? And we are transformed. We're transformed by gracious love, by being chosen. That is how we change. You see, do you see that in the Bible it tells you that you're loved without conditions? That you're chosen, not because of effort, not because you deserve it. You are loved because you are loved. And love will leave an indelible mark in your person. Uh, in the book, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, Harry wins by touching the bad guy. You see, the bad guy, Voldemort, but he wants his power, and he's just little monologue near the end of the book where Voldemort and the, and the Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, and he says there is neither good nor bad. There's only power. And those who have the will to take it. To which he ought to say, man, he's been reading a lot of Marx and Nietzsche. That is weird. Um, anyway, and so Voldemort, the Nietzschean and Marxist scholar who always thinks about power, that power is something to be consumed and gained, is defeated by a person, a little boy, who was saved because someone gave their power away. He was saved because his mother sacrificed her life for him and gave power away. 
And so, Albus Dumbledore, after Voldemort crumbled away in the back of the head of Quirrell, floats away and takes off. Do you know why the Dark Lord couldn't touch you, he says. And Dumbledore says this, Love as powerful as your mother's for you leaves its own mark. To have been loved so deeply, even though the person who loved us is gone, will give us some protection forever. To have been chosen by God, to be a jacked up person, but loved by God, gives you some protection forever. It means that if God chooses you, jacked up and undeserving, then you can withstand every performance review. Every report card, every social media troll, every dating app rejection, all those things, you can withstand it. Because the love that you really need is yours. In Christ, you are loved. And that leaves a mark on you. And nothing can take that away. Because you didn't earn it in the first place. How are you going to lose it? Let's pray. Mighty and gracious God, you choose a people for yourself, not because we've earned it, not because we deserve it, but because you are gracious. Lord, help us to live out that grace, to embrace this grace in bread and wine. Help us to be transformed, to be loving people kind, forgiving, enable us to be people who are not above critique, but that can accept it willingly. Help us also to give gracious critique, to point out to those who are insecure, vulnerable, mean, that there is a better way. Lord, be with us now as we partake of your supper, so that we would be transformed and this world will know your graciousness and your love in Jesus.